0: Awards Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com. You're the mom, the maid, the keeper of the cookies. You do it all and you look good doing it. It's parenthood on a mother level. Here's your host, Denise Hanitka.
1: Hi everyone, you are listening to a brand new episode of On a Mother Level. I'm your host, Denise, and I'm so glad you are here for another conversation with a mom in the Midwest who has a story to share. My Everett just turned three, and around his birthday, I always like to share stories of mental health, and I think it's even more timely today, because everyone this week has been talking about the death of 30-year-old Chesley Christ. She is a former Miss USA, and she died by suicide over the weekend, jumping off a high rise in New York City, a woman who appeared to have it all, who we learned was struggling with depression. I want to read the statement put out by her mother. She wrote, I have never known a pain as deep as this. I am forever changed. Today, what our family and friends privately knew was the cause of death of my sweet baby girl, Chesley, was officially confirmed. While it may be hard to believe, it's true. Chesley led both a public and a private life. In her private life, she was dealing with high-functioning depression, which she hid from everyone, including me, her closest confidant, until very shortly before her death. While her life on earth was short, it was filled with many beautiful memories. We miss her laugh, her words of wisdom, her sense of humor, and mostly her hugs. We miss all of it. We miss all of her. She was a vital part of our family, which makes this loss even more devastating. Chesley, to the world, you were a ball of sunshine wrapped in smiles. We talked, FaceTimed, or texted one another all day, every day. You were more than a daughter. You were my very best friend. Talking with you was one of the best parts of my day. Your smile and laugh were infectious. I love you, baby girl, with all my heart. I miss you desperately. I know one day we'll be together again. Until then, rest easy and in peace. In lieu of flowers, please make a donation to Dress for Success, an organization dear to her heart. If you or anyone else you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, please contact the National Suicide Hotline at 800-273-8255. Along with the story of Chesley, I want to bring you the story of Mary, a mom living in rural Illinois, a farm wife, mom of two, who struggles with bipolar, suicidal thoughts, and keeping her head up on some days when there may not even be a reason to be feeling down. And she's very honest about her struggle, what she's been through, the toll on her husband, the toll on her kids, and the toll on herself. She talks about feeling anxious and guilty whenever she feels this way. So I think her story is really important and... I'm glad that this is a place that she is offering to share it. As moms, we want to be superheroes. We want to be everything to everyone, and we don't want to admit when we can't be. And so that's why this story is important. So please reach out and check on your mom friends today. Even the strong ones. They're probably the ones who need it most. So here to tell her story is Mary. Mary, I want to say that I really admire the fact that you reached out to me and said that you have a story to tell and something that you really want to talk about. So so just thank you for doing that. And I very much admire people that just like, try and just go for Mm -hmm. it and do that. Is that who you are or does that take a lot to to reach Um, out?
2: It is a little bit. Um, I've always kind of had this like professional part of me. Even in high school, I started my very first business in high school. For me in the business I'm in now, owning my own business now, it was something um, that I was like, you don't know unless you ask. Like it could never happen." But if you don't ask, then you won't know I was on Paula Sands back in November. I would have never thought in a million years that I would be on TV. And because I asked, they asked me to be on. So, um, same with here. If I don't ask, I never know. So,
1: Well, you know, it's one of those things though. That's so much easier said than done because Mm -hmm. like, yeah, of course, of course, all you have to do is ask but you're really putting yourself out there.
2: I grew up. Um, my dad would always tell me like probably more towards like dating wise, but he would always tell me if the person says, no, how is that any different than where you are now? That's not any different than where you are now. You already have that no in your head right now, but if you ask either you're back to where you were or you're in a new opportunity and going forth. So yeah, that's kind of always what I've thought of not that taking that step and asking is easy, but that's something I've always had in the back of my mind.
1: Yeah. And so when you reached out, what you wanted to talk about was your own journey with mental health. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to get into that, but I first, of all, I want people to meet you a little bit. So <laughs> you are the mom of two and these two kids are very close together in age. Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: 14 months. I was holding a six month old baby girl. With a positive pregnancy test 10 days before Christmas. My 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 um husband was like, Is that the test from the first time? And I'm like, that's not how that works. Like <laughs> they don't they don't stay that long. Like, nope, this is not all I is can think of. Is your
1: poor, poor body. Like yeah. my body was not recovered after six. No. Months.
2: And and my pregnancy with my daughter was horrible. I, you know, I lost a lot of weight with her. I was very, very sick from day one till nine months. Um, and they, her, she didn't come early. She didn't come late. She can pretty much came on time. And I was sick the entire time. Um, so my body was absolutely not recovered from her at all, but baby number two was coming whether we wanted him to or not.
1: <laughs> well, and you must've been freaked out. You're like, I can't be sick for 40 weeks again.
2: Well, yeah, I actually, um, about the, I think it was the night or two before I took his test. Um, I was sitting with my daughter and all of a sudden I kind of got like nauseous and I I told my, I, I had thrown up so much with her that I was like, Oh, I have to go throw up. Like, I'm just going to go do like, I had it like control over it. (laughs) Um, and so, um, I was sitting with my daughter playing and I told my husband, I'm like, can you just keep an eye on her? Like, I have to go throw up. (laughs) And so I threw up and I came back down and like, I was just like, okay, like I just got sick over something and maybe I ate something bad. Um, and then the next day I'm like, I'm just going to get a test. I'm just like, let's, let's just see. And I literally, um, I took a test in, I had been in the quad cities for something else. And so I took a test, um, on the 80 rest stop going towards into Illinois. That's where I took the pregnancy test. Oh my gosh. And I took it there. And I was like, as soon as I went positive, I was like, I knew it. I knew it. And at that point it was 10 days before Christmas. And I was like, I, I freaked out when I got pregnant with my daughter. So I didn't do anything like fun announcement or anything. So I was like, oh, this is the perfect time. Like I'm going to give him the pregnancy test for Christmas and like make a big deal out of it. But then as the day progressed, I'm like, we're gonna have two babies. Like, I can't hold this for another 10 days. Like, I have to tell him now.
1: <laughs> so were you sick the entire time or did your body no. respond differently? And that's
2: why I was pretty sure that it was a boy right away because I was not sick with him. Um, I maybe threw up like one or two times. Um, he was all in my belly, he ruined my back because I you would have sworn I was gonna have a 10-pound baby, like he was just huge. And he only came out seven pounds, but I mean, he all, everything was in my belly. Um, And with my daughter, there was fluid in every inch of my body. I was swollen mess. There's rumors that like you have different pregnancies with boys and girls, but um, I definitely had, they was totally different and I was fine with it. It just was, I had such a big belly. My back was already hurting. And then I'm carrying around another baby. (laughs) It was a lot of work. So,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, when, when you have two that cannot walk, that's like a whole nother ball game.
2: Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Those last few months, um, because he was born in August. So I had to do the whole summer, um, of pregnancy, um, late pregnancy. Right. Um, and so that whole few months, June and July, I was just please, Like I kept forcing her to try to walk. (laughs) It's like, please walk, please walk. (laughs)
1: See, now I did the same thing, but with potty training, you know, when they're like yeah. two, just over two, I'm like, all right, like now's the time. Cause I'm not doing the both of you.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, see, that was, you know, that goes to like the milestones I'm doing, the, I'm trying to do milestones together. And honestly, it almost kind of works just because of their age. So we did potty training together. We did, you know, all the, all of that stuff was both of them at the same time. It really was like having twins. They're just a year apart, pretty much. My daughter has some ADHD problems um, that we saw at an early age. So she actually um, mentally is actually an, a year behind. Um, So it really is like having twins and it's good. It's, it's easier to be doing those milestones all together. Sometimes it makes it a little difficult, but we are doing all of that together. So,
1: and they get along pretty well. They
2: do get along. They would say (laughs) that they're best friends. They're together all the time. The school tells me all the time how they have to separate them when they happen to see each other in the hallway. Um, but then they also can be very mean to each other at the same
1: time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like any brother sister pair can be. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, by, by the end of summer, I'm like, will you guys please go back to school? (laughs) (laughs) We spent too much time together.
1: So you live on a farm out, you're in rural Illinois. Yep. And you are not a stranger to farm life. When you first got into it, you were studying agriculture, but it was a little bit of a culture shock in some respects. Um, yeah, it
2: really was. Honestly, um, I grew up with agriculture being in my blood from the start. Um, my, my dad and my um, grandparents all grew up showing cattle. Um, I was more into the livestock part of it. Um, and then when I went to school at Black Hawk, I was learning more of the um, grain side of it with corn and beans and that sort of thing. That's what my husband does is he's into the, um, the grain side of it. They're doing, you know, they're picking corn, they got soybeans, um, seed corn, all of that. Um, and so the cattle that we have are my cattle. I take care of them. He does the hay and takes care of growing the hay and cutting the hay and all of that and putting the bales in where I need them. Um, But other than that, I'm the one doing all the dirty work with the cows. I like to call myself the bovine midwife because I'm taking care of, (laughs) taking care of them when they're pregnant and checking them on babies. And I get all excited when they start having their babies. Um, I'm in there. I have videos on my phone of how is literally birthing babies out. <laughs> I'll, sometimes I'll go on Facebook live and <laughs> show it. Um, Cause it's just a cool experience. And, and that's cool also to raise the kids in that way. It's a good lifestyle for them to be around. It's good for them to see that. And there isn't these, this like awkward, where do the babies come from when they've seen, you know, 10 babies come out of mom was behind already. And my daughter, my both my kids love it. You can already tell that my daughter is going to be the one in the barn with me. And my son's going to be the one in the tractor giving me bales when I need them. they've already decided that because he's just he's not all about the animals like I am. And uh, he wants to be riding in the tractor. If he could drive a tractor every day to school instead of the bus, he would. So (laughs)
1: Well, my two-year-old, well, he's three now, would like to do the same thing. (laughs) Living on a farm like that, you do have to divide and conquer because your husband's schedule is very seasonal.
2: Yes, it's seasonal. Um, It's not any nine to five whatsoever. Um, We do somewhat have our winters um, and summertime is not an off season for us. He's, we're um, almost all the time during the summer, he's doing hay. Um, He has his own hay business that he does. And that's about every two to three weeks in the summer. And he's got quite a bit of field. So it's let it grow, let it cut, let it dry, bale it. Let's do it all over again. (laughs) Um, And uh, he sells it. And then we also have enough for us to um, have at home for ours. Um, but then during springtime and during harvest, he's busy with that. So, um, a lot of times I am a single parent and the fact that I'm, I'm raising these kids, um, bath time, bedtime, before school, dinner time, all of that is on my shoulders. Um, and I knew that going into this, I knew that, that that was the lifestyle, um, not saying that it isn't easy, not saying that I wouldn't wish for an extra pair of pants sometimes, or I wish that I didn't have to get up at 5 a.m. to put the kids on the bus, um, but I get to spend a lot of extra time with them. And I, I could say that they are my best friends. We have such a fun time together and the conversations that they have at this age at six and seven are just hilarious. Um, and so I love spending time with them and, and the fact that they're also old enough that when daddy is out in the tractor, we can go visit daddy and go take a ride for a little while. Um, but it is definitely, it can be a struggle at times raising the kids like that. So,
1: well, his schedule even dictated like your dating life. So tell the story of how you met and like how that all worked out.
2: So we met online. He had to pay to talk to me to send me a message. And because you were using like,
1: I mean, this is a long time ago. This is Yahoo personals.
2: Yahoo personals, which (laughs) is, which match, I think match.com bought them. Um, I don't think it doesn't work anymore. I would love to go back and like read our conversations back then. Um, and I say back then it was 2009, but (laughs) so 12 years ago or so he sent me a message. And at that time it wasn't, free. You had to pay in order to send those messages. The story changes every year that it was $20. It was $30. It was $40. The <laughs> price keeps going up on how much he had to pay to talk to me. I guess the, the longer he has to do with me, the more it costs, I guess I whatever. <laughs> um, and so we, he met me in end of September, which is like harvest, Um, And so we lived about an hour away from each other and um, he would leave the field at eight o'clock at night, drive an hour to my house, spend the night with me and then um, be up at five o'clock to be sometimes four o'clock to be back in the field at five o'clock to start picking again. Um, And I was working um, towards the DeKalb area. So I was going the opposite direction from where he was at. And um, he finally, about after a month was like, will you please move in with me because I'm exhausted <laughs> and I'm tired of driving and all of that. And I said, that's fine. So then I started doing the driving back and forth to school from uh, where we're at now. But um, it worked out because I ended up moving to the school of Blackhawk East and Kiwani, and having a, a great uh, college career there, being able to find a career that ended up turning into stay-at-home farm wife. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of how everything's gone in your relationship. It's like, once you decide you're, you're all in, and that's what happened when yeah. you decided to start trying to have your, your daughter.
2: <laughs> yeah, we were, uh, we had known that we wanted to have kids right away after we had the, um, after we got married. And so we got married in November, but we decided in September that we were going to start trying as in, let's check, let's watch the calendar and do it that way. Instead of just hoping for the best. Well, the first time we decided to check the calendar and do it that way, I was pregnant 10 weeks before our wedding and was sicker than a dog the entire time. The pictures don't show it, but I was absolutely miserable. They were literally strapping me into my wedding dress and they were putting alcohol underneath my nose to keep me from throwing up
1: as they were trying to
2: strap me into my wedding dress.
1: I can't believe that wouldn't make you throw up.
2: (laughs) It actually doesn't. It's, it's a, I don't know. It's a weird thing. My, um, my aunt, works in like OB in North Carolina. And she was like, you're feeling sick. Like where's the alcohol and it was, the rubbing alcohol in it. I don't know, like does something, the smell of it or something just kind of like brings you back. So
1: did you have any non sick moments of the wedding day that you like remember, or is it all like,
2: um, the only thing I remember is, uh, we got married in, um, just this, it was, it was a church at one point, but then this guy just kind of owned it and rented it out. Um, and so we got a pastor and just did the wedding. It was non-denominational and, um, it was in November. So in November they were like, oh, we're going to turn on the heat. Well then, you know, 50 people show up and it gets pretty warm in there. Well, I have a strapless dress. I'm fine, but we get up there and my husband is in his tuxedo and he's a, he's a little bit of a bigger guy and he is sweating profusely horribly. And I kept the entire time during our wedding. I'm like, are you okay? Like I was afraid he was going to be one of those, those grooms that pass out. And I was like, (laughs) I kept asking him the whole time. Like, are you okay? And that was like the only time I didn't feel sick. But then as soon as we got done with the wedding, then I was like, oh, I feel horrible. Like I'm just ready to go. Like let's let's get these pictures done. Yeah, I think just because I was so focused on him yeah. that I didn't like feel how I was feeling, but I was like, please don't pass out. Please don't yeah. pass
1: out. See, my husband was also sweating profusely. We were in a church and in, in the month of June, he was sweating profusely, A, due to circumstances and B, due to like just being in front of people. He like cannot yeah, yeah. stand everyone looking at him. Um, and I have like a, a vague memory of like just this big sweat bead, like sitting on the end of his nose for like a good portion of of the events um, while, the, while the priest was marrying us. And he was just like, just so freaked out. He just hated the idea that like, it was all the attention was on us. Oh my God. Even to this day, he just like hates the idea of like anyone looking at him. Yeah. Oh yeah. So you were pregnant with your daughter and you guys were off and running.
2: We were, we were because I was holding a six month old baby with a baby on the way. So, and it was nonstop from there because about two months after I had my daughter, I started developing what I thought was postpartum depression. Okay. Um, and that's, I mean, after you have a baby and you have depression, that's what you, that's what you assume. Right. Um, and I had some depression issues and, um, I have PTSD from some childhood trauma. And, um, so depression wasn't a, uh, wasn't new to me but we had things going so well, we were, we were living a really happy life and depression wasn't being a problem at the time until about two months after I had my daughter. Um, and so we just assumed that um, postpartum, uh, hit and, um, I went to my OB and she put me on Zoloft. Um, that's kind of standard for them to do. Um, it's kind of the first Zoloft is kind of the first medication that they always try. Um, and that really wasn't doing much for me. Um, I think she upped the dose around, uh, around that, the next visit, she upped the dose a little bit, and then I got pregnant with baby number two. And although I got the okay to be able to continue my medication while I was pregnant with him. That was something I was really scared of. I didn't feel comfortable doing that. Um, And so I didn't continue my medication while I was pregnant with him. Um, I slacked on any therapy I was doing. I just kind of didn't do any of that and just focused on the pregnancy. Um, Although I wasn't sick with him, they uh, were really concerned with a lot of health problems with him. Um, They were finding a lot of markers and things like that on his ultrasound that made it seem like he may be sick of some sort, which he wasn't, he was perfectly healthy baby. But of course I was anxiety stricken and worrying constantly about what was going to happen. So (laughs) one, I was either sick or I was scared. So that was the both of them. So, um, after I had him got used to the life of, um, two babies and in my head, it was like, okay, so um, does postpartum start over again now that I had another baby? And like, when does this stop sort of thing? Um, And it really actually wasn't till uh, about a year after I had him, 2016, when I was like, okay, I'm kind of in a place now where uh, I have a routine with the kids. Um, It's time to work on me and I'm not okay. Um, And this postpartum isn't going away. Like I said, I was really convinced with it being postpartum, with it being associated with the kids. I had a lot of those symptoms of not wanting to be a mom, not wanting to have the kids um, and kind of like being not emotionally attached, um, which is a a lot of what the postpartum um, kind of associates with. Um, And so I had a lot of those problems.
1: So let me stop you there. Like what, what did that feel like to you? Like, is that something that, that your husband was noticing or how was it like manifesting itself in you to have those? Um,
2: I have a distinct memory of me sitting, I don't know if I was pregnant with my son or not yet, but I remember sitting my baby girl in front of me, looking at her, her innocent face and looking at her saying, I don't know if I love you, I don't know if I want you, I will take care of you, but I don't think that I want this, and I don't think that I want you, like, I distinctly remember that, her innocently having, like, no clue what I'm talking about, but that whole memory, like, that is, that's almost scary to me, that I was in that thinking, like, um, and it scared me, too, because it was, emotional neglect that I was giving her um but her physical needs were completely met I you know I I would stay up all night making sure that she was taken care of and fed and and I was taking care of that part of it but I just did not feel emotionally attached to her um And I remember also, um, telling my husband when I was pregnant with my son, like I had actually come up and said to him, because I was so in it that I don't think I want to have this baby because I don't, I don't want it. Like, I don't want to do this again. And I think that for him, for him to hear those words out of my mouth, made it really real on how much I was struggling.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: yeah. It was a hard time in our lives because it was like, what do what do we do about it right now? What we're about to have a baby, why we have a baby sitting here. What are, what are we supposed to do about it right now? What like, just, just deal with it. Just we're, we're having a baby, whether you like it or not,
0: mm-hmm. it's
2: happening. So I guess just deal with it and see how we feel when we have the baby. And yes, there was happiness but I was still underlining struggling very much. And it was hard to focus on what was wrong with me when I'm taking care of two babies and trying to figure out how to, what's our what's our daily life gonna be like now that we have these two babies. And we had barely been married for two years. I mean, it was marriage, baby, baby, now what and I was a emotional wreck um and so um at that point I was I I went to the OB and tried to figure out what I could do from there and I kept saying this isn't working that what you're giving me isn't working it's not working and And she was like, at this point, I, I can't do anything more for you. I I'm an OB. I'm not, I'm not a mental health person for you. So she sent me off to another facility. And this is honestly, this is why I like to share my story because this is the hardest thing that the mental health industry struggles with. There is underfunding, understaffed, and more people need help than there is help out there. Yeah. They always say that there's help out there, but I can tell you right now that it's very hard to find. Yeah. So I went to this other facility. I I had to pay for them to listen to my life story and for them to say, yeah, you probably really should be on some, some serious medication. You should do therapy and at that point, they said, you'll, we'll put you on a waiting list and we'll call you in eight to 10 weeks. That part of my life, um, I've struggled with it before, but at that part of my, in my life, it wasn't just depression. I was suicidal and to think of sitting there for eight to 10 weeks suicidal or any other person sitting in there for eight to 10 weeks, suicidal for them to even call and make an appointment, how many of those did they not did not make it to that appointment? Right,
1: right. Um, That's sort of a terrifying thought.
2: Yeah, and it and it's real. It's one hundred percent real. Almost every facility you go to has a waiting list because there is not enough doctors. There's not enough staff. There's not enough funding. Um, what I ended up realizing and taking charge. Of my um, journey was that um, a lot of these facilities that are hospital owned or hospital conjoined with a yeah. hospital, they will be taking those veterans, the ones that are the state pays for welfare, like those those sort of people that they have a guaranteed check from. They're going to be taking those people first before they take those insurance or self pay people. Okay. So that puts a lot of people on waiting lists and that was me. So I went from that information to finding a psychiatrist out in Iowa city that was not affiliated with a hospital at all. This is a standalone uh, office that has multiple doctors that do not have any facilitation with any hospital. They will encourage you on which hospital to go to or a hospital go to, but they're not getting paid by the hospital. And so I called them and they made me, uh, uh, scheduled me for a week later. Um, so, uh, seven days is a lot better than eight to 10 weeks. Um, and so I got in with this doctor.
1: So really quickly Um, for people who aren't in this area, you're mm -hmm. talking about, what was that an hour and a half drive
2: for me? It was an hour and a half drive. Yes. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, still, this is not like convenient care. (laughs) No. And even for me
2: going to quad cities is about 45 minutes, depending on where, you know, if it's on the West end of the quad cities, that's still about an hour for me. So, but for me, I, Iowa city was not a problem because I'm not going to sit and wait for eight to 10 weeks for a doctor that I needed now. I was pretty certain that if I wanted to, to be completely honest, if I wanted to stay alive and be there for my 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 new kids and my husband, eight to 10 weeks wasn't going to happen.
1: But that's, um, that's how desperate the situation was, is that you absolutely. felt like the clock was ticking.
2: Yes, absolutely. And um, one thing I have been told several times is how, self-aware I am of my situation. A lot of people would have been like eight to 10 weeks. Okay. I'll just wait, like, and stay depressed and not take the bull by the horns and be like, no, I need help. I'm aware. I need help. I'm aware. I'm not okay. And I'm going to do something about it. Um, Why do you think you were able like to that.
1: do that? Yeah. Like, cause that, that requires like a, a next level of awareness that, mm-hmm. You know,
2: and that, that I can say is not something that I've always been, that was something that I learned through a lot of therapy to be self-aware of what's going on. Um, when I get into those moods, when I get into, um, that suicidal feeling, it's like, I'm watching myself from above. Like, I know what I'm doing. Isn't right. I know I'm not okay. Okay. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm not, that I'm going to stop what I'm doing, but I know that I need to do the right steps to seek out the help that I need.
1: Yeah. Um, it's,
2: it's a weird feeling. It's I trying to explain it to people. It's just like, I can't believe that you can do that, but it's the reason that I'm still here today. Yeah. 100%. So, um, so I went out to Iowa city and saw uh, the doctor and um, he immediately started on a trial of medication. And this is another thing that a lot of people will kind of lose hope on because um, the medication, antidepressants, that sort of thing is a trial and error process. And if you don't have the willpower to stick with it, um, which a lot of people, a lot of depressed people don't want to stick with it. They see that, oh, well, this medication is not working and, and nothing's going to work for me and I'm just going to quit.
1: Yeah. Especially, Um, yeah. Especially if, um, if they were hesitant to start it in the first mm -hmm. place, then it's like, see, I told you, I told you this wasn't right for me. You know, it like sort of validates, you know, any hesitations they have. And I have a close family member going through this right now. And yeah, just the idea of trial and error doesn't sit well.
2: No, it doesn't. And it's hard. It's very hard. Um, I was very lucky with the doctor that I had who was very adamant about, um, okay, this medication doesn't work. Let's go on to the next one. Like after hours, he would call me because I was very certain on, okay, here's the medication that I'm on. I'm immediately having bad side effects. This is immediately doing the opposite of what it should be doing. Um, and I was like, okay, we're let's move on to the next one. And he was, he would call me after hours when I leave a message being like, this isn't okay. And he would be doing all the things to make sure that I was getting the right medication. And we tried um, trial and error for um, about five years of trial oh and error. Oh my gosh. It was before 2020 <laughs> um, that he ended up moving from Iowa City to another facility in Cedar Rapids. Um, and when he moved, Um, I, he said, Oh, well, I'll get you to, um, somebody that's in the quad city. So it's a little closer for you. Um, and it really wasn't like a thought in my head. Like I probably should follow him. Like it was, he, he made me feel like I'm going to get you to where you need to be and we'll continue what you're doing. Right. Um, so I didn't have him and it turned out that the doctor he was trying to get me with was the one that I was on the waiting list for. And by Originally, the way, with that waiting list that was supposed to be eight to ten weeks, they called me a year later to make an appointment.
1: So that's just, um, that's just so unacceptable. That's just mm-hmm. so like that 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 would not work for most people, you know? Yeah.
2: And especially
1: yeah. if if the person doesn't know how bad a shape they're in.
2: Yeah. If they're, if they're not in control of what they're dealing with. Yes, it can be very scary. And I can only imagine the amount of people that they probably tried to reach that were no longer with us. And that's the sad part.
1: The interesting thing that I've discovered recently is there is a DNA test that you can take that tells you what medicines are most likely to respond best for you. And so that um, in my experience has taken away some of the trial and error. Of course, that is if you can get your hands on this DNA test and the yeah, providers um, that believe after in
2: it. I, After I figured out what medication works best for me, I found out about that and I was like, Ugh. oh, that would have saved me so many years.
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, five to be exact. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> That Um, is an
1: option that good to know that's out mm -hmm. there. Um, Yeah.
2: Um, And it's not even just for, for antidepressants, it's for any medication. Yeah. um, What will work best and how your body reacts because everyone is different. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Everyone is different, especially with antidepressants. Um, It, some people react well to some and some people react not well to others. So that being able to have that and, and that, that they created that is amazing because yeah. like I said, people will give up on that trial and error so quickly. And to be able to have that access to that and know for sure what could work best for you, um, right. is amazing. Cause that's, that's taking out possibly years of trial and, and error. Okay. So, um, he went off to Cedar Rapids was like, I'm going to hook you up with somebody in the quad cities and you're going to be all hunky-dory and great. And you're on, you're in therapy and you're going to do great. Now with therapy um, therapy is expensive. Can I just tell you that that's
1: it's plain very out simple. expensive.
2: It's expensive for a hourly visit. And there are a lot of people that need to go weekly and you know, like I said, they always say there's help out there, but it's for a price tag.
1: Right. And, and I mean, it, hourly, we're talking like some places can charge upwards of $150 for that hour. Oh yeah.
2: My, my, the therapy I was doing was a hundred dollars an hour. Yeah. And that is there. They have a timer going and the next patient is waiting. Yeah. Um, we often joke about how much, how much they're making off of, yeah. you know, the whole mental health industry, how much are they making off of us? And that's the sad right.
0: part.
1: Yeah. I, um, I stopped going to a therapist because I thought she was so married to that clock. Like I would just see her eyes focusing on that clock. And I'm like, God forbid I get 41 minutes of your time instead of 40. Like it just yeah. it drove me crazy. Cause I thought, yes, I understand That you're running a business here and this is like you're running on appointments, but like at some point you need to chill and like be present. And now the therapist that I see now regularly gives me an extra five to ten. I'm not trying to get free services out of her, but she's just like in the moment, we're talking and I actually feel like she's listening to what I'm saying instead of watching that stupid clock.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's can be hard. It's can also be really hard to find. the the right therapist that you click with too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's the other thing. Sorry, I'm just interjecting because I've some experience in this area. Um, My company made a big deal about offering like 12 free therapy sessions to everybody. And it was like, you know, we support your mental health and we are going to, but you have to go to their little like bucket of four therapists. And I'm like, okay, that's not how this works though. Like you don't just like go see this lady because that's the free one. I guess that's better than nothing, but also it's not. It's not better than nothing. Like you can't just establish a relationship with this therapist for your 12 free sessions and then once your free sessions tap out, you know, I just thought like what a short-sighted way to do it. Here, pick off this list. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) So anyway, so like, yeah, even like the best intentions still are just like, no, that's not how this works.
2: Yeah. I mean, you have to be with somebody that um, you feel listens to you, but also like you want to be able to sit there like us and be able to talk and have a conversation. And I don't want it to be clinical. Like talk to me and, and, and tell me, don't tell me what I want to hear. And don't tell me what you think you need to tell me. Like, this is what you buy the book. This is (laughs) what you should be doing. I want you to be there for me to be able to vent. And that's what, that's part of it. That's being able to vent and all the things, and then teach me how I can handle that situation better. Teach me how I can cope better um, and deal with those things outside of being in your office. Um, and so there was some times that, I mean, I did a lot of work in therapy. This last therapist that I had, um, did a lot for me. I have, like I said, I have a lot of childhood trauma. Um, my parents divorced before I even knew, uh, or was aware they, I I was three years old. So, I have no recollection of them ever being together and they hated each other. And that's that, I mean, that's not, that's despise each other. And to this day, um, and I was an only child. So there was a, a lot of drama and trauma and everything going into it. And so when I went to this therapist, this was the first time outside of being a kid and being in between a divorce that I was able to really dig into what happened to me as a child and what, what I was dealing with and how did that, how does that reflect me now as a parent myself? That made a huge difference. And I, and I often wonder if that is why I hit that wall when I had my daughter because it was a trigger in me to be like, okay, now I have to be a parent and what kind of parents did I have? And what kind of parent do I want to be? Because I don't have a good, uh, a good memory and of, of parenthood and now I have to learn how to be a good parent for my own kids. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was a huge struggle. That was a lot that I did in therapy to work through that. Um, but there was sometimes that I would go into therapy and come out and feel worse than I did going in. Sometimes that's how it works. And so that summer that my psychiatrist went to Cedar Rapids also happened to be one of those times that I came out feeling worse. And what do I do when I feel worse? I don't want to go back. So he went to Cedar Rapids, so I had no psychiatrist at the time. Uh, I quit going to therapy. Um, and things just started to snowball. And so by that September, um, I said to my husband, if you don't take me to the emergency room, I will no longer be alive. And that was, that was rough. But that was, like I said, my self-awareness, like, like this is to the point that we can't we can't just, this, this has to be handled professionally like this. We can't just keep going on like this. Um,
1: and how did he respond to that?
2: Um, he, I don't think he grasped how serious, I mean, he took me, but I don't really think he ever grasped how serious it was. Um, until I was in the emergency room being asked by, um, I guess a mental health the facilitator asking me that he, my husband wasn't in the room with me but he could listen from outside the door and the the um, guy asked me on a scale from 1 to 10 how likely would you be to commit if we let you go and i said 8 and when i came out of the room my husband was i mean practically almost in tears because it was like okay th- this is real life like this is this is happening my my wife is, this is real. Um, and I also, I, I still hold, I don't want to say regret, but I still hold, um, sadness in my heart for putting him through that, for him to have to take me to the emergency room for that reason. Um, having to leave me in the emergency room. Um, we showed up at noon. Um, I did not get placed into a ward until 10 p.m. Oh my I ended up staying in the, um, in the emergency room for that long period. As soon as they bring you in, you get um, pretty much everything taken away from you. They put you in scrubs. Um, they did while I was in the emergency room, I was able to have my phone. Um, when my doctor left Iowa City, I had them copy every note he ever had so I had a record of all the medications that I was on so that they didn't put me on something that I was going to react badly to. Um, so I had that, which not one single person the entire time looked at it. They, they pretty much took everything away from me in the emergency room. Um, they did take uh, a couple tests towards the beginning because they wanted to make sure that the um, suicidal thoughts were not um, a medical problem. That it was actually mental, that there wasn't like that I was on something that was causing it or that there, I mean, there's a whole, all sorts of things that could cause it. So they were ruling all of that out at first, but it was frustrating to me because I'm sitting there with these papers. Like I have a problem. I am well aware that there is a problem there. I didn't take anything. There's nothing wrong that way. Like help me. I have a problem. These are all the papers that say that I have a problem. Um, and so um by 10 o'clock, they ended up uh taking me in an ambulance to um a facility, an actual ward. Um, about seven o'clock that night was when my husband had to leave um because the kids were at home, they had to go to school. Um, and that was probably the hardest thing ever because he had to leave, didn't know we had no at that point we had no idea what was going on. I didn't know where I was going. Um, I didn't know when I was coming home. Um, it was it was a hard goodbye. Um, and especially knowing the situation and how I was feeling, like it was super hard for him and to come home to the kids saying, Where's mommy? And he's like, I don't know, and I don't know when she's gonna come back. Like that's insane. <laughs> that is that is not not that's not cool. Like that's that's heartbreaking. Um, I can only imagine how that conversation went. I mean, it, it makes me sad to think about it, but for him to be in that situation, I could only imagine how that felt.
1: Remind um, us how old they were at this time.
2: Um, and that was in 2018. So, um, Addison was four and Cooper was three. So they were in yeah. preschool. Yeah. Um and and they didn't have a whole huge understanding other than the fact that I was there or not there. That was yeah. about all that they could understand. Right. Um so um so I went to the uh award. Uh again, they go through all the same questions that I've already been asked a million times in the emergency room. Um, but once you get to the award, they completely strip you of everything. Yeah. No purse, no phone. Um, I had about two seconds to call my husband and give him a phone number of where I was at. Oh, wow. Which I didn't even know where where I was at specifically because I was taken in the emergency room and then brought in and it was dark and I had no idea where exactly where I was at. So okay. I had about two seconds to call him on my cell phone and give him a phone number of where I was at. And then I was stripped of literally everything I had. Um, going through all the questionnaires, and then um, into a dark room with pretty much a mattress. And here's a, a plastic toothbrush. Here's a like some soap and good luck, pretty much. I have never cried that hard in my entire life. I didn't sleep at all. Um, but in those you know, six, seven hours, uh, that I was there. It was like, I can't call my, my husband. I can't call and talk to my kids. I have none of my, none of my property. Like I am stripped of everything. And if I were to go through with what I wanted to go through, this is exactly what I, what would happen. Like I am literally in hell right now, not being able to have contact with anybody this is what would happen if I died. And that was the realization that I got to, which is not what they are intending to do. When you go to a ward, they want to make sure that you're safe at least for 24 hours. But it was like, it was a epiphany for me. Like, this is not the, this is not the life I want to live. This is not where I want to be. This is not where I want to stay. And I want to be with my kids. I want to be with my husband. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be depressed. I don't want to be sad. I don't want. I I want this life that I have. So by I think 7 a.m. the doctor came in, gave me about five minutes of his time, and then ended up sending a caseworker to me who um, actually listened to me for the first time out of everybody I would talked to in the last 24 hours, um, and she was amazed by the fact that I had this epiphany, um, but also understood that due to my anxiety being in that ward was not going to be healing for me. Like this was not where I needed to be to fix myself. Um, so we kind of came up with, um, (laughs) she had me call my husband. He came in at 11 AM that day. Um, and I said, I like, for me, I was like, you got to come in, you got to come get me. I'm going to get out, you know, like I'm all excited. And he's just like, um, not even 24 hours ago, I left you because you were in a kill yourself. Right. Are, do I, am I really coming to get you? Like things have changed that quickly. Um, so he didn't believe, honestly, he didn't believe me. And I don't think he was ready to bring me home because he was scared. Right. Um, so he, they brought him in. Um, I, I, we sat down and we kind of came up with an aftercare plan. It was like, okay, she can't just sit at home with these kids and stare at four walls because that's just, that's just going to fester all of these emotions. She needs to do something productive. Um, She needs to, she needs to spend time with you, your, my husband, You you know, you need to make time for her if she needs to go ride in a tractor with you, then go let her ride in the tractor with you or go pick up parts or whatever, bring her along. Um, she needs to have some of that me time. Um, that isn't just grocery shopping, you know, she actually needs some time away, um, from being, she needs to be Mary and not just mom or not just wife.
1: Um,
2: and it was, You know, there was a list of aftercare on top of go back to therapy, (laughs) go back to your doctor, like, don't stop doing that because had I, had I actually done the things that I had, were supposed to be doing like therapy and medication, I probably wouldn't ended up in the hospital, but at the same time, that was a scare me straight sort of situation that was okay, I don't want to be in that situation again. So I'm going to do everything I possibly can to make sure that I don't go back there. Right. So I drove to Cedar Rapids the next week. I made an appointment for my therapist the next week. Um, and when I went back to my psychiatrist and, and I saw him in Cedar Rapids, he was kind of like, at first he was like, what the heck is going on with you? Like, I, you know, last I saw you in Iowa city, everything was fine. Like, and then I'm getting phone calls from the hospital. Like, what is going on? Like, what's, what's up? And I was like, man, I don't know. Like things are not cool right now. And at that point he realized, okay, well, going back and looking at your chart, you're doing this. And this is bipolar. That is not just depression that's not anxiety that's not ptsd this is bipolar up and down you're having great highs you're having low lows um and i had never been diagnosed with bipolar until then
1: interesting um
2: and he also said at that point all right all of we've tried all the medications we've tried all the antidepressants we've tried all the antipsychotics they're not working your body rejects them so, we're going to go to something else. So, since um, November of 2018, I've been on two medications that are um, anti seizure medication that is known to work for bipolar. You don't get all the crappy side effects of an antidepressant. Um, and they have worked amazingly for me. They're keeping me like this instead of this roller coaster. Um, but I can tell you that I'm not at all cured. This isn't, this isn't something that goes away. Um, but it's keeping me from going down. It's keeping yeah. me from going back to the hospital. Okay. And that's something huge for me.
1: So when you say you're not cured, that brings me to just your most recent social media post, which is mm-hmm. you had a bad day.
2: I had a very bad day. Can you talk Uh, to me a little bit about your bad day? um, Saturday was not a good day for me. Um, And actually, if you want to go back a little bit farther, um, my last suicide attempt was in October. Like I'm, I'm not at all, uh, cured. Like I'm going to struggle with this for the rest of my life. This is something that doesn't go away, but if I do the work, I take my medication and I do therapy and that sort of thing it can help me it can and you know when I have people to reach out to um but I have to do the work too I I can't I can't expect that my brain's just going to fix itself because it's not so Saturday uh is it's kind of a extreme on the other end um saturday i woke up and i actually i would say for about an hour i was in a normal mood um (laughs) i took my christmas tree down for the first time um in my defense we only put it up a few days before christmas because i had covid um so i just enjoyed it a little longer in january so i took my christmas tree down and i was good and um i was kind of cleaning stuff up the kids had were weren't up yet so they started coming downstairs and it was just like all of a sudden rage absolute rage and it was you know I was taking it out on the kids which didn't they didn't deserve it um I my husband was in the shop working on stuff I went out to him and I was just like I'm in a bad mood I'm not gonna sit here and talk to you because I'm gonna scream at you for no reason can you please make arrangements to have the kids go to your parents because I'm not going to sit here and scream at them the whole time. And just like, it was like, I need to remove myself from the situation before I hurt the people that I love the most, just based, based on my mood. Um, and my husband is like, what's going on? What did I do? Like he has to make a reason for it. And there isn't a reason Like this was, this is what happened. Like I went from zero to 100 in this amount of time. Like there wasn't, there wasn't a reason. There was not a reason for me to freak out that way. I ended up getting in the vehicle and driving, like just driving. Like I had no intention of going somewhere specifically, just drive, put some music on, be alone and just drive. I, I, didn't want to be at the house because I didn't want to see the dishes. I didn't want to see toys laying around. I didn't want to see laundry piling up. I just needed to be away alone and just be just chill. And I come home when I'm, I'm calmed down so I can chill so I can like be okay. Yeah. So, um I finally came home mid afternoon or so because I felt bad because he was he was worried about me. Like he yeah. was oh, worried gosh, yeah. about he didn't know where I was at, he didn't know where I was going. Um he was worried for me in the sense of she's freaking out. Um she has a history of suicidal attempts. Um I don't know where she is. Like that's where his head was. Oh, um I don't so know why bad. she's upset like That was his mind. So I finally felt bad enough to be like, I'm just going to go home. You'll know where I'm at because I'll be at home, but I'm going to bed. I'm going to turn off my phone. I'm going to bed. Let me be just, you take care of the kids. I don't want any responsibility right now. I'm just going to sit in a dark room and I'm just going to be, I'm here, but I'm not okay right now. And so that's what I did. And I literally slept until the next morning. And the next morning I was anxious because I felt like I made this uproar and I, I was afraid of, I was anxious of the aftermath sure. of what I had done. You know, I, I apologized to the kids. I apologize to my husband. Like I, it was, it, for me, it was embarrassing because it's almost like a second, like that wasn't me. That was somebody, that was somebody else. But I still have to deal with what I, how I acted and what, how I handled it. Um, but then it's another day and things move on. So life with me is all over the place. And, um, like I said, I'm not cured. I'm not, I'm going to have bad days. I'm, I'm going to have good days, but I'm also going to have sometimes really bad days. and. I'm still working on it. Um, I don't go to therapy right now. Um, I work with uh, a group in the Quad Cities called Foster's Voice. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that before. I have, yeah. Um, so I met, with, uh, met up with them in September for uh, a suicidal awareness walk that they do in September. Um, the uh, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention does all these walks in September to raise money. Um, I used my business in September to raise money um, for the walk. I was probably the only one there that um, they give you a sticker and says, I'm walking four. And I said, I wrote on the sticker, I said, myself, I am three years out of the hospital and I'm still working on my struggle. I went up to um, Kevin Foster's dad um, and I said, look, I can't afford therapy. I am still struggling every single day. And every time I try to find a group, a support group, they're for the people that are dealing with the person, or they're the people that have lost a person. Where's the support group for me? And he said that um, when they lost Foster, that he realized that there wasn't a group for those people that had there been, would Foster still be here? You know, had um, had there been those groups, how many people would still be here? Um, and so every month um, since October, um, I have been going and um, visiting with them and a, a group of other people and um, being able to share our stories and our struggles. The first meeting was, Um, Also the same week that I attempted in October. So it was a big deal for me to be there and to be like, this is my story. And I am still struggling. Yeah. Um, And Foster's dad, Kevin, after he heard that, like he got right up off of his chair and just gave me the biggest hug ever because he was like, I want you here. I still want you here. Don't like you need to be here. So it's it's a great, it's a great thing to be a part of that. I know that it's it took me this long to find a group like that to be able to have that support. I um, not saying that my husband and my kids aren't support, but sometimes it's good to have yeah, outside yeah. those resources and that sort of stuff is out there, but it's hard to find.
1: Well, it's taken. It's taken a lot of courage to tell your story and to sit here today and say that you had a, an attempt recently. that's 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 scary. and um, it must be scary for everyone who loves you. And what is your advice to someone out there who is a caregiver or who loves someone who is feeling the way that you do? What's the most important thing that they need to know about how to support you?
2: Number one, if they are open and honest with you about an attempt, or that they're feeling like they need to, that they feel like they are going to attempt, or any of that, don't get mad at them. Don't you don't make them feel even more guilty about what they're already have done or are thinking of doing. Don't being mad at them is not going to make it any better. Okay. Um, the other thing would be, don't try to fix it because as much as you try, it's not fixing it is not the problem because they, they may not even know what needs to be fixed. Um, if I knew exactly the right steps to make sure that I don't ever do that again, I would do it because I don't want to do it. Um, but I don't. So just being able to be able to openly say hey i did this or hey i'm thinking about doing this and just be like okay what do you need from me what do you need me to do and if it's just a listening ear be a listening ear um but don't try to fix them and don't get mad at them for it because they they don't need to feel anything more any any more burden any more guilt Than they already do. Cause that's a lot of it is for me at least, is I feel like a burden. So it'd be easier if I wasn't here. That's that's my mindset. Either it's I don't, I'm I'm being a burden to people, or I just can't handle what my brain is making me going through right now. I can't like you can't get out of this, you can't get out of your head, and it's just like there's nothing else to stop this. Your brain from keep going, except to stop breathing. Like that's their that's the mindset of of being in that being suicidal. Like you, yeah. You can't you you can put a band aid on a on a scrape. You can you put a cast on a broken arm, but you can't put a cast on a on a broken head mm-hmm. <laughs> and a broken a broken brain. So um, it's harder to fix, and it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of work. Um, and, um, I, I posted too, about that. Um, a lot of times when you tell people, you know, about that, I've been suicidal or I'm depressed or that sort of thing, or I'm depressed today, you don't get flowers for that. You don't get cards. Um, a lot of the times you get judged, you get looks, they don't know what to say. So they just, they abandon you. I get, I have had a lot of problems with people abandoning me because I'm too much to deal with. Um, And I'm sorry, but I, I, if I could make it all go away, trust me, I would, Mm -hmm. I would absolutely love to make it all go away. Because if you think it's hard to deal with me, imagine how I feel dealing with it every single day. So just be a listening ear, be, be, there for them but don't try to fix it don't just yeah. just be there ask them what you they need it may be as simple as go get me a coffee go get me a tub of ice cream like you know just can I go just take a nap and watch the kids like it's can be really simple they just need a, a, a break to breathe
1: yeah yeah I hope your husband's been that person for you and that he's he been has. someone he, to lean on. Cause I know it must be really difficult for him, you know, it
2: absolutely, it absolutely is. Um, and just being the person I am, I am 100% apologetic to him constantly. And he's like, you can't help this. Like saying, sorry, is not going to fix anything. Um, he's still learning how to handle things. Um, obviously Saturday I gave him a whole win world of like, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, but he's learning, he's learning when to shut his mouth and he's learning when to, Hey, you just need to go rest. Um, and he's learning to know when to, okay, the kids need to go spend some time with my mom, or I need to go take the kids and go do something with like you need a time away from the kids, um, and do something other than being a mom. Um, and so that, that moves into what I'm doing right now as a business is yeah. he was 100% on top of, um, I'm like, ah, can I do like, you know, there was a startup cost. Uh, should I really do this? Yeah, do it. Sign up now. Like no questions asked, do it right now. Um, because it was a year and one day after, uh, I got out of the hospital and it was, is this my app? Is this what I need to be doing for my aftercare plan? And it was 100, 100%. Yes. This is what I need to be doing.
1: And so tell people about what it is.
2: Okay, so. Uh, My business is called Cows, Kids, and Chaos, (laughs) which is 100% what I just explained to you all right now. (laughs) Um, And so it's a do-it-yourself home decor. Um, I use chalk couture products. um, And what that is, is uh, we use a chalk paste that's similar to a paint, um, but it's reusable. Um, and then we also use silk screen transfers. Which are, they're kind of like stencils, but they have a silk screen in them. And so you use a squeegee and you're able to uh, squeegee that paste on to any surface and create your own home decor piece, um, a sign, a decoration. Um, and it can be put on literally anything. You can make wood signs, you can make um, You could put it on glass or metal and then you can erase it and redo it. There's just all these possibilities. So um, I've made a huge business out of it. Um, I'm doing monthly classes um, near me, also in the Quad Cities. And I'm creating uh, at least three times a week because I go live on my Facebook. Um, I'm creating a project myself and then selling some of the stuff that I make. So um, I'm being able to be creative Um, and put, you know, be busy, um, those vendor shows and classes and parties, that's mommy time to go out and maybe have a few drinks with these customers that I have that have turned into friends. And I feel a sense of, you know, even though I'm a mom and even though I'm a wife, and even though I take care of cows, I feel more of a sense of purpose being this this business owner than I've ever have before.
1: So how can people find you?
2: <laughs> okay, so um, I'm on Facebook probably the most. I'm I'm working into getting into Instagram. Okay, um, but I'm on Facebook the most. Um, you can search. Um, I usually pop up right away if you start typing in cows, kids, and chaos. But the actual username is cows kids chaos cc. Um, that's the same username that I have on Instagram. Um. And you'll be able to find my business page and then my Instagram is that as well there.
1: Mary, thank you so much for sharing your story and your experience. And I think you're going to help a lot of people, the more you continue to put yourself out there.
2: I really, I really hope so. That's, that's my main goal. I'm always trying to share, even though it may not be a great story, uh, even if it helps just one single person or if I can be a listening ear for somebody else that's in the same situation, um that's that's what i want to do that's what i want to i want to save a life
1: you have been listening to the wqad podcast network